Strong men riding horses in the west on a range 500 miles, a thousand, reaching from dawn to sunset, rested blue to orange, from hope to crime. Except that strong men are desert-eyed, except that strong men are pasted to stars already, have their cars beneath them, rentless too, too broad of chest to strength when the rough man hails, too flailing to redirect the challenger when the challenge nicks, slams, buttonholes, too saddled. I'm not like that. I pay rent, am addled by ill-eligible landlords, run if robbers call. What mannerisms I present, employ, are camouflage and what my mouth's remark to word wall off that broadness of the dark is pitiful. I am not brave at all. Strong men riding horses. Lester after the Western. From the Bean Eaters. By Wendelin Brooks. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Composition Podcast, Episode 9. Of course, as always, it's your host, Dermaine. Um, I hope you've had a book in your hand in the last week or listened to a book, did some type of reading, and influenced your mind in a positive way. Uh, happy Women's History Month to you. Of course, it being Women's History Month, I got to start off with one of our great, greatest women writers in history, Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, the first African-American to receive a Pulitzer Prize for poetry. Huge shout out to Gwendolyn Brooks. If you've been listening to me, then I believe that's like the second or third poem I've read from her. Um, that poem that I read actually goes hand in hand kind of with our book of the week and a few of the things I want to talk about for this week. Um, I'll bring that up a little bit later, but... Definitely, again, happy Women's History Month to you. Hope you've been reading something. This is the first uh, week this year that I didn't finish my book of the week in the week I wanted to read it in. So I'm kind of disappointed in myself because of that. But I made it three-fourths of the way through the book. So almost done. Just got to keep going. I hope you've been doing the exact same thing. Keep going. Keep reading. Keep learning for sure. Um, instead of me having my head in a book this entire weekend, I actually went out and had some fun for the weekend. I went to a Benny the Butcher concert at Baltimore Soundstage. He performed his new album, Tanner Talk 4. That was pretty fucking dope. Uh, and then I went to see Damon Wayans stand-up comedy tour. Uh, stand-up comedy, he's on tour. That was fucking hilarious. He went out and he killed it for like, what? two hours, two and a half hours. That was absolutely amazing, a memory I'll always have. Glad I got to got to take that in. Um, and yeah, besides that, working and trying to do, trying to do as much reading as I could. Uh, it's been a, a really interesting week as far as news goes. Uh, first, actually, I just wanna say, free Brittany Griner, she's still being held in a Russian fucking jail for a fucking uh, a weed vape pen or some goofy ass shit. So fucking prayers to Brittany Griner and her family. I hope she's able to 
get some type of justice soon. Don't know what's going there. That's absolutely ridiculous. Um, Dolly Parton drops off the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ballot. That was a pretty big thing. Dolly Parton's one of the biggest country music artists of all time. And, you know, once you make it to a certain status in music, it's just considered rock and roll for whatever reason. I don't know why, but once it reaches, once your music reaches a certain pop status, it's considered eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame after a certain time. But Dolly Parton came out with the stance that she's not rock and roll. She never has been. And if she decides to make a rock and roll album one day, then she'll gladly accept. But until then, she doesn't want to be on the ballot to uh, sway any votes for anybody else. I thought that was really dope, really honorable. She's been killing shit for God knows how long. So shout out to Dolly Parton for being fucking honorable in that situation. Most of the news that I really want to talk about is NFL shit, but it's Women's History Month. The women don't play in the NFL, so I'm trying my best to hold that at bay. Uh, what else? Uh, writer Ann Tyler caused a bit of a Twitter debate over the weekend. Ann Tyler is one of the most acclaimed writers over the last 50, 60 years. Uh, she's a novelist, short story writer, and literary critic. She's from Minneapolis, Minnesota, but she's been a Baltimore native for the better part of her life. Uh, she caused a bit of a debate over whether authors should be able to write from any perspective. She says she believes authors should be able to write from any perspective without the cloud of cancel culture hanging over the head. The exact quote with the Sunday Times is, I'm astonished by the appropriation issue, she says. It would be very foolish for me to write, let's say, a novel from the viewpoint of a black man, but I think I should be allowed to do it. If an incredibly talented person has written novels in the 1930s or 40s, and all of a sudden it is discovered that there was something he said or did, even something as bad as sexual harassment, he should be condemned for it, she adds. But I don't see why you should withdraw his novels from publication. Unquote. Now, when I read this article, I kind of agreed and disagreed with Ann Tyler because on the one hand, yes, you should be able to write however you feel, whatever you think, whatever comes to your creative mind, you should be able to put on paper and share with others. But then on the same token, when you share your work with others for them to experience, you have to be able to deal with the fire, deal with the consequences when you offend or hurt somebody that has that experience especially if that's not something that you've gone through or something that you are. Like writing from the perspective of a black man is cool if that's what comes to you, but you can't be surprised if black men hate your work or hate you for it because you're writing about something that they've actually experienced that you can never know. And vice versa, if a man writes from the perspective of a, of, of a woman, you can't be surprised if women go and tear you down for that. And then on the same token, I do agree that a writer's work should be able to like stand the testament of time, especially if it's if it's good work. But at the same time, if you're a terrible person, you're a terrible individual, 
and you and you have a damning history like should you be able to still flourish creatively like um kind of look at R Kelly R Kelly's work is great work but he's such a fucking terrible individual a terrible person it's like does he deserve to have his work flourish I was actually somewhere the other day where was I in a bowling alley and they played Hotel by R. Kelly and Cassidy. And I just was, I was in shock by the song coming on. But then at the same time, it's music. And I guess it's, to some people, still just good music. And as long as the work is good, who really cares about the individual? So I can understand that perspective too. Um, I don't necessarily agree with it. I feel like if I can't, if I don't agree with you as a person, if I don't like you as a person, it's really hard. Uh, it's it's picky and choosy because there are plenty of people that I think are shitty people that I love their work now that I think about it. Uh, it's all about perspective. And I guess that's the part I agree with Ann Tyler on this, on this hand. It's like, you're gonna like what you wanna like. So no, nobody should be tore down because there's always gonna be the next person that looks to that individual as not the worst in the world. So. Who knows? Please let me know what you think about that fucking topic. Uh, do you think that writers or creatives in general should just be able to flourish through their work no matter how they are as a person, no matter what their history is, or no matter what their beliefs and views are? Definitely let me know what you what you think on, the, on my Instagram, on my Twitter and shit, because that's a really interesting topic. That's going to fuck with my head all week. It has been ever since I first read the article. And like I said, there was a little social media, a little Twitter debate about these two topics started here with this article. But I'm starting to learn not to engage with Twitter debates because with Twitter specifically, it's not really so much about the topic and the debate as it is about the argument and negativity. And I used to like really love it, trust me. I used to be a huge Twitter troll. But the older I get and I try to actually engage in conversation, the more I learn it's never about the conversation. It's only about making each other look stupid. So, definitely again, shout out to Ann Tyler. A few of her uh, notable works, uh, Breathing Lessons, that's like her, her most notable. A lot of people go crazy about that book. I've heard about that book for a really long time. I've never read it, but I'll definitely go check that out. Uh, French Braid is another really huge, notable book. Go check out any of her works that you want to. And Ann Tyler, if you want to write from the perspective of a black man, at least consult with a black man on it, please. That would be gladly appreciated. Moving on. I guess I'm going to just go ahead and do it now. Let's talk about some football. This NFL offseason, this last week, week and a half, has been fucking absolutely ridiculous. Deshaun Watson says no to the Browns. Then he changes his mind and goes to the Browns for a $230 million contract. I believe six years, $230 million, fully guaranteed. Absolutely ridiculous. Baker Mayfield requests a trade to leave the Browns. They... Say no, but at this point, who the fuck gives a care? They're probably going to either trade him or cut him. Um, I think he's going to end up on the Seahawks. 
I doubt if he's going to end up on the Colts. They just tried that experiment with Carson Wentz on a and quarterback, and it didn't work out. So I don't see that happening. Khalil Mack traded to the Chargers from the Bears. Uh, Julio Jones cut by the Titans. It's been a lot. Uh, with the Deshaun Watson trade, I actually do think... Now, I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, as you should know already. I fucking hate the Cleveland Browns. And because I hate the Cleveland Browns so much, I absolutely do think that that trade is going to come back to bite them in the ass because it's a fully guaranteed contract. So on the back end, they're going to have to start getting rid of most of their star players to, to help feed that contract. So we'll see how that goes. I really do hope it comes back to bite them in the ass because I wanted Deshaun Watson on the Steelers so bad. They ruled that out pretty, pretty early with Mitch Trubisky. I don't know how the fuck that happened. All these quarterbacks on the market. And that's, you know what? I'm happy for Mitch Trubisky. Former number two pick in the draft. I hope he's able to work it out. Um, yeah, it's been a lot. Tom Brady unretired. It's funny. I think my first or second episode, I remember announcing his retirement. And here he goes again. Tom Brady back on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for, I believe, his 22nd season. Something like that. I guess shout out to him for fucking coming back and doing it again. And Devontae Adams leaves the Green Bay Packers, traded to the Oakland Raiders, 147 million point two five. Makes him the highest paid receiver in NFL history. Absolutely ridiculous. $28 million, over $28 million a year. This next NFL season is definitely going to be the biggest that we've seen in a long fucking time. Yeah, I can't wait for that to come in August. Super excited for that. Shout out to my fucking Steelers. We didn't do too, too much, but we definitely made some huge moves. Shored up our O-line, which was a little bit tragic last year. Signed Miles Jack from the Jaguars. And now this is a football podcast. <laughs> That's going to be it for the NFL that I'm going to speak on, although there were a, a lot more happened, a lot more crazy shit. But I do want to get into my book of the week. It's called The Three-Cornered War, The Union, The Confederacy, and the Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. Long name, long book, amazing book. It's by Megan Kate Nelson, and it's published by Scribner Books. The book is 352 pages beginning to end, but it is an extremely hefty read. Uh... A whole collection of names and information, dates and times. Essentially, the book chronicles the expansion of America. And it really blows my mind how fucking savage not only Native Americans were, but Mexicans I didn't know were. Complete dogs how they were. And then the Union and the Confederacy... The way the book, you know, projects it for me, it makes it seem like the Union and the Confederacy, as history lays it out, had no type of, of love for each other. But then to see how the country has escalated to where it is now, where we have this whole kumbaya America is one type of, type of fucking veil 
that isn't real, of course. And we have our Democrats and Republicans, which kind of isn't real, of course. I don't know. This book is really interesting to me. On the one hand, it projects how civilizations spread into the West of America and the bloodshed and the consequences and all the fighting that came with that and why certain, certain groups hate each other up until this day. But then on the other hand, I don't know if the author did this on purpose, but to me, the book beautifully weaves into the stories, into the accounts from different people, how politics transitions over time and how whether it's the Confederacy or whether it's the natives or whether it's the government themselves using different parties against each other or giving, giving rations or giving promises or, or, or resources to certain groups to use them against other groups. It's all very political in how it's done. And I think the author does a, a really great job, a really beautiful job actually, putting that in certain points in the book where you don't really even know that it's happening, but you're taking in so much political fucking warfare, so much political strategy, that it's like, wow, this is where we are today. It's just the resources are different. The war is different, but it's the same thing. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to explain unless you really get into the story. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, one of the other things that kind of jumps out of the book for me is just the whole ideological differences between the North and the South, the Union and the Confederacy, and how we're kind of just like really stuck in that whole political simulation right now. Like we have our red and our blue states that pretty much interpret the same type of thing. And this is like 400 years into the future. Like you would think we would have some type of political advancement. But like I said, these loops began back then. And to see that we still kind of represent the same thing now today blew my mind. Well, my excerpt today is going to be from the second chapter in the book, pages 42 to 46. I would always be curious as to how the country that was not fully inhabited, but inhabited by pretty much two different peoples. You had the Mexicans and the Native Americans already here. And I would just always be curious growing up as to how the Americans that pretty much migrated to this country were able to just overtake and claim the whole country. But like I said, this book definitely lays out the grand scheme of how just certain politics would make people turn on other people and eventually wipe themselves out. This chapter specifically lays that out for me and I definitely wanna share it with you. So if you have the book with you, again, page 42 to 46, that's where we're gonna be reading. Let's go. In 1846, the first U.S. soldiers appeared on the eastern edge of Apacheria, led by General Stephen Watts Kearney. The Americans were at war with Mexico, and this large army was one part of a two-pronged overland invasion of Mexico's northern states. Kearney's men were moving west to California, 
while General Zachary Taylor was moving south from Texas toward Mexico City. No one traveled through the territory without the Chiriquas' permission, however. Mangus, Colorado sent emissaries to notify Kearney that he would meet with them. In late October 1846, Mangus arrived with several of his warriors at Santa Rita del Cobra, a former Mexican mining town north of the road. He entered Kearney's tent, which had been pitched among the red adobe ruins. Kearney told Mangus that the Americans were crossing Apacheria not to fight Indians, but to make war on Mexicans. This pleased the chief immensely. Nuestra gente tiene un odio eterno de los mexicanos, he told Kearney. Spanish was the language of trade and diplomacy across the Southwest, and Mangus Colorado spoke it well. Kearney, however, spoke only English. Our people have an everlasting hatred of the Mexicans, the general's translator explained. The Chiriqua had raided the northern Mexican states of Sonora and Chihuahua for as long as Mangus Colorados could remember. Riding south on a well-worn trail that was named after them, attacking towns and presidios and stealing horses, sheep, and cattle. Mexican civilians and soldiers retaliated, riding into Apacheria and striking Chiriqua camps, killing as many men as they could and taking the women and children to work as slaves in their fields or households. In response, the Apaches went on the warpath, killing hundreds of Mexicans and sharp strikes on frontier towns and taking Ispano slaves on their own. Chiriqua warriors came back from these campaigns wearing crosses and medals seized from the bodies of their enemies as talismans, with saddles decorated by silver ornaments taken from Mexican horses. By the 1840s, this era of violence had created ghost towns across southern Apacheria as Mexicans fled the northern frontier for the safety of the Midlands. As long as the Americans joined them in their long outstanding fight against their mutual enemy, Mangus Coloradus told Kearney, the Apaches pledged eternal friendship to the whites. You might now pass in safety through our country. Kearney gave Mangus Colorado's papers to show that the Chiriquas had talked with him and that they had promised perpetual friendship with the Americans. After a few hours of brisk trading, the Apaches offered mules, ropes, whips, and mescal in exchange for Americans' shirts, blankets, knives, needles, thread, and handkerchiefs. Kearney's army moved off to the west toward Tucson and California. For several years after this first meeting, only Anglo traders and a few American soldiers traveled the roads through Apacheria. Then in 1849, wagon trains began to appear on the eastern horizon, creaking slowly over sand-drifted ruts from Mesilla to Tucson. They were filled with the families and belongings of American gold seekers, intent on making their way to California along the southern, southern route. Sometimes the Chiriquois would descend upon caravans, get between the animals and the wagons, and herd the cattle, sheep, and horses back into the hills. Other times they would surround the encampment 
and Mangus Colorados would meet with the migrants. If it appeared that they were merely passing through a pacheria, the chief let them go, though not before charging a toll, a loaf of white sugar perhaps, or a particularly fine horse. In the summer of 1851, a large party of 300 well-armed American soldiers and civilians passed under the shadow of Dezil and camped in the same place that Kearney had, among the ruins of Santa Rita del Cobra. It was a surveying party led by John Russell Bartlett, who was there to mark the newly negotiated international boundary between Mexico and the United States. When Mangus Coloradus met with Bartlett, the surveyor explained to him the particulars of the Americans' treaty with Mexico. Mangus was alarmed to hear that American soldiers had promised to protect the Mexicans from Apache raids and to return any enslaved Mexicans they found in Apache camps. When Bartlett took two of Mangus Colorado's own slaves into custody during their talks, the Chiroquois chief was incensed. You came to our country, he said to the surveyor. You were well received by us. Your lives, your property, your animals were safe. You passed by ones, by twos, and by threes through our country. You went and came in peace. Mangus Coloradus began to shout. We were friends. We were brothers. We believed your assurances of friendship and we trusted them. Why did you take our captives from us? Bartlett tried to explain that the United States and Mexico were now allies rather than enemies. To Mangus Coloradus and to all Chiroquois who believed in the power and significance of the will and the world, this was nonsensical. It was just more evidence of traits that all whites, both Mexican and American, shared with one another. A tendency to lie and to betray even their own allies. Clearly, the Americans could no longer be trusted. Mangus Coloradus left Santa Rita del Cobra that day in July 1851 and did not return to meet with Bartlett again. His suspicions of the Americans' motives were proven right when later that fall, his scouts reported to him that U.S. Army soldiers had encamped and started building adobe forts along the, the southern Rio Grande and along the road to Tucson. Miners and farmers had followed, constructing houses and towns, digging out their field for crops, and defending their settlements with armed guards. It seemed that the Americans were no longer content to merely move through Apacheria. Instead, they were attempting to colonize Chiroqua territory through a combination of military force and settlement. Mangus Coloradus was a war chief but he did not believe in warfare as the first and only course of action. The Americans had come in force to Santa Rita del Cobra, and he did not like to attack an enemy with greater numbers than his and a strong defensive position. He decided to negotiate. In 1852, he met with an American general, Edwin Vos Sumner, the Chiroquois chief ultimately agreed to recognize the jurisdiction of the United States and to allow the army to build forts in Apacheria. In return, the Americans would not launch military campaigns against the Chiroquois and would distribute rations at regular intervals.
Again, the sticking point came, however, when Sumner asked Mangus to prohibit the Chiriquois from raiding in Mexico. Are we to stand by with our arms folded, Mangus Colorados protested, while our women and children are being murdered in cold blood? Are we to be victims of treachery and not be revenged? Are we not to have the privilege of protecting ourselves? Sumner caved on this provision, and Mangus Coloradus left this first treaty negotiation with the Americans satisfied with his diplomatic achievement. He had ceded no land, and he could now concentrate on his own campaigns into Mexico. By adhering to the treaty stipulations, he could show the Americans the importance of his word. If we say we will keep peace, Mangus told his people afterward, we will do so. We keep our agreement. All right, so that's going to be it from my excerpt. But um, just those few pages alone, a lot of information to take in. One thing I really, really enjoyed about this book is, like I said, the correlation of these different names, these different tribe leaders, or even the American men that had their own causes and their own interests in expanding America out west. Their names are plastered all over streets and schools and museums and you know it, it, it kind of feels arbitrary until you actually learn what they did and why they're recognized for the reason that they are and there is countless names in this book that I'm able to recognize now and say wow this is what this person did that's why they have a school or an entire neighborhood or whatever I think that was one of the, the most interesting things about this book. For example, this chapter here, Mangus Coloradus, Colorado. That's just a really slight example. Uh, the book talks about Brigham Young. Uh, to me and to a lot of people, when you hear that name, you just think of the university. But the actual man, what he stood for and what he did. And the fight he fought against the American government, I thought, was a little bit interesting. Uh, definitely get into that in the book. Speaks on him. It uh, talks about the Mormons in the book. So, in America, you know, they say land of the free, home of the brave. And, again, that just comes off as an arbitrary statement. But in this book, it kind of defines where that comes from. So, people like Brigham Young or... The, the, the leaders in the Mormon movement, these are all people that had their own plights with the U.S. government. You have Texas that, before conceding, stood as its own independent nation. You have all these people that like fought against the government to claim their own independence in this quote-unquote wild, wild west type of era. And I actually, I really think that's amazing to learn all of these things. It really does all add to the sum of what America is and what America can be actually if we just make sure we remember all of our history and teach all of our history. Um, and at the comedy show I went to the other day with Damon Wayans, not to, you know, give up any of his material, but he talks about how over the last few years, there's been this crusade to remove 
all of the con the Confederate statues and rename all of the schools. And he says, like, that's bullshit. He's against it. You should keep all of the statues, keep all of the schools of the, the Confederate soldiers. Just make sure that you, you, you tell the full story and give other people's history behind the, the Confederate statue of Robert E. Lee. Oh, I can't tell the joke. <laughs> Almost told his joke. Sorry about that. But I completely agree with that sentiment of what he said in that joke. Keep the, the, the Confederacy, keep these, these parts of history that are seen, these relics of, his, of parts of history that are seen as negative because it still is American history, but also tell the entire story of not just the other side, but all of history. Make sure you tell the Native Americans history. Make sure you tell the slaves and the African Americans history, the first blacks in the country's history, the Mormons history, the fucking, it's, it's all a lot. And it's all the total of what we are because it really, it can be the home of the free and the home of the brave. It still can be that as long as everybody has equal playing field. And in this book, you really get an explanation of how these equal playing fields became so uneven. <sighs> I wish I could share a lot more. I can go on about this book forever and ever. I really, really can. Uh, but yeah, the most crystallizing part of the book for me was how we have all of these names of these people and this book alone that that are synonymous with so many different things outside of outside of things that they actually accomplished in their lives. I've been to cities named after so many of these people and there's so so much pop culture shit named after all of the people I've read about in this book. And you never really even hear about their accomplishments. So, you know, I'm glad I'm able to, to, to learn more and able to share what I've learned about these people. For sure, go check this book out. It's called The Three-Cornered War. It's by writer and historian Megan Kate Nelson. Shout out to her and all of her books. Like, she really has some in-depth great shit. If you are ever going to learn about Wild West history or American history or pre-industrialization history, this is one of the people that I would say turn to. All of her books are incredible. Again, shout out to her. Um... For some music this week, I actually just came across this song a few days ago by this artist that I found on Instagram. She's from Maryland, and she goes by the name Jade Knox. That's Jade, J-A-D-E-K-N-O-X-X. -X. Her Instagram is underscore, underscore, J-A-D-E-K-N-O-X-X. -X. Go follow her there. Definitely go find out more information about her there. Like I said, I wasn't able to speak with her beforehand, so I don't have too much information about her. I just saw she posted this new single, and I actually fucked with it. So I want you to hear it. Let me know what you think about it. Let her know what you think about it. Definitely go follow her. Um, and keep reading, yo. Uh, next week, my book for you, it's called Black Cake. It's by Charmaine Wilkinson. Excuse me, Charmaine Wilkerson. Um... I've been excited about it. I read the uh, I read a preview for it. Where was I? I believe I was in like an Amazon bookstore and they had like a little preview on like one of those little tablets that they be having posted. Oh, and Amazon is actually closing all of its bookstores. That kind of broke my heart. I guess bookstores really are a dead art. 
all 89 stores in the U.S. Amazon is closing its bookstores. When I asked the manager there what the fuck was going on, he said they wanted to focus on groceries and yada, yada, yada. And they just bought fucking MGM, MGM's movie studio for, I think, like $8.5 billion. So they're focused on some other shit. They're off of books. Uh, again, my book for next week is called Black Cake. It's a novel by Charmaine Wilkerson. And let's get into this song by Jay Knox. Go get this book so we can talk about it. This has been episode nine of the Composition Podcast. I'm your host, Dermaine. Go subscribe. Go fuck with me on all the socials. And yeah, man, until next week, yo. Peace. So